Welcome to the Lumpin' Week in Review, the show that presents the best of Lumpin' Radio each week. This week, we discussed a pioneering and forgotten agrarian, learned about workers' struggles in Europe, and discussed why sports remain so hostile to women. All this plus the latest from Eureka Cast Now, Size Matters, and the Biden Files. It's the Lumpin' Week in Review for March 12, 2021. Mario Smith spoke to Julie DeCaro about her forthcoming book, Sidelined, an examination of how women have been pushed to the margins in professional sports. DeCaro talked about her departure from the score here in Chicago, why networks continue to undervalue female sports fans, and what's ahead for Chicago's struggling teams. News from the service entrance with Mario Smith airs every Thursday at 2 p.m. I just want to start this off by saying I know that there is a tremendous amount of backlash whenever you say anything on social media. And in this year of pandemic and all the strife and crap that America and and the world has been through, has any of that gotten any better for you on social media? Mm. You know, it comes in waves. It comes and it goes. You know, I mean, there are times like right now, I think I blocked something like 600 people this weekend. Wow. Um, And I knew it was going to get worse as the book got closer to coming out because there are people who whenever anything good is going to happen to me, they are right there to make sure that it, they, you know, make it, try to make it as miserable as possible. Right. So I was sort of prepared for it. Um, but I think like every woman would say, you know, it sort of comes in waves. It's, it's like, you know, they forget about you for a while and then you say something they don't like, and they all come back out of the woodwork again. And I think one of the things that makes, especially online harassment, so traumatizing is that you never know when it's going to come. Mm-hmm. You never know what's going to set it off. I mean, one time I tweeted something about the rock being on WWE and, and that blew up and I got, you know, hate messages for days. So, uh, you know, it, it depends. I mean, I would say it got worse during Trump's reign mm-hmm. because he, you know, basically said whatever he wanted. And a lot of guys took that as well. I can say whatever I want to, um, uh, will it get better under Biden? I don't know. But, uh, yeah, I mean, I think like for all women, it just sort of comes and goes and it depends on when you're asking. I had the pleasure of having Doris Burke on this show. Goat. Um, the, exactly. And, I I really started to try to assess in terms of sports radio, why I can count on one hand, maybe two, the number of women who have a prominent voice on sports talk radio Mm -hmm. in the United States. And I I dare say that if you listen to like talk sport in the UK, you'll hear more women on talk Mm -hmm. sport than you will on almost any radio station in the U.S. You spent a long time at The Score, and I loved your show. And, and your show Thanks. won awards, and people listened to your show. They dug your show. My friend Maya Akai tried to have a show on The Score. There have been many women that have tried to get into that line on The Score. Why do you think this, this the, the idea of a woman talking about sports in America really still has not stuck with primarily men? Yeah, you know, I really don't know. Um, I, you know, I, I know that, you know, there's a generation of us has grown up more than one generation since Title IX was enacted in 1972. So there are girls like myself and women like myself who have grown up watching every Bears game, watching every Cubs game, you know, just like the boys do. Mm-hmm. And sports is as central to our world as it is to theirs. 
Um, I, I don't know. I know there is a there is a, a certain segment of the male population that really feels like, and because I would have guys say this to me on the on the station, I go to sports talk radio to get away from women. I don't want to hear a woman's voice when I turn on sports talk radio. Mm. So I mean, there's definitely that, and there is definitely this group of men who feel like everything is being taken away from them. Like they're so used to privilege that equality now feels like discrimination, mm-hmm. and they push back against that. So whether it's more black people, whether it's more people of color, whether it's more women whether it's more members of the LGBTQ community, they feel that any entree into their space is taking something away from them. And, um, you know, there's a bit of that too. And then I think there's good old fashioned sexism of guys who just think that if a woman says it, uh, I won't believe it until I verify it with, um, with another guy. Um, so, you know, and then I also think there's, you know, sports talk radio in general is very focused on this male 18 to 24 demographic. Mm-hmm. And I've had so many women say to me, I love sports talk radio, but I feel so excluded because whenever I tune in, I hear about like who has the hottest wife or girlfriend, which player has the hottest girlfriend or, you know, or just, you know, jokes about women or they're handling allegations of sexual assault and domestic violence. And they're doing it in a very ham handed way that makes people feel like they're not welcome. Um, and, and while everyone in radio is trying to expand their audience. Why Sports Talk Radio doesn't go to women, I will never understand. But I suggested that many times, and I was told over and over, our demographic is men 18 to 54. And so that's just what it is. And I think it's going to stay that way until we get some women in positions of power. And I wonder, because I look at, we go back to Doris Burke. She's a G, man. There are very few people, let alone men, but there are a few people who know a lot about basketball and know it in the way that she does and her ability to be able to relate is actually kind of comforting because if I hear her say something about a player, I tend to be like, that's got to be true. Um, when we had her on, we talked about, it's funny, the week before Kobe Bryant died, she was on the show and we were talking about how the WNBA was starting to get that that push now, that steam, not from only women watching it, but from men watching it mm-hmm. too. Just her idea of how sports in America is framed lends for a, a, a much bigger discussion. In your book, and, and, and I'm, I'm thinking about Scoop Jackson's book too, both of you all have a parallel about culture and sports in America. What is it about this culture that lends itself to the idea that women have a prominent place in sports in America. And and really quickly, Simone Biles, Serena, um, and I want to talk about the Serena Williams part of your book too, because mm. I, I haven't even read that part, but I know where you're going. Um, why, why is America so, and I can't say just men in America either, but why is America so reluctant to embrace our sports heroes? Is it is it strictly culture? Is it race? Is it a combo? I definitely think that when we're talking about Serena Williams, we're talking about the women in the WNBA, there is a racial factor there, no doubt. And I think you can just look at the way that fans have embraced the U.S. women's national soccer team versus how they've embraced the, the WNBA. And the you know the NWSL, the Women's Soccer League, has come under quite a bit of fire and the U.S. women's national team as well for advertising with those white faces. When you've got women on the team like Crystal Dunn and you know new women coming into the program who are women of color who definitely are among the best players on the team and should be featured. Um, So I I definitely think that plays a part of it. And I think that in my book, Howard Megdell says that, you know, the biggest barrier to the WNBA is getting America to accept and support a league that is 
uh, you know, whatever, 80% black women, um, because misogynoir is a real thing. And if you don't know what that is, it's the, uh, I know you know what it is, Mario, but it's the, <laughs> it's the idea that, you know, that, uh, black women don't just face racism, they face racism and sexism together. And, and that is the definition of intersectionality when we're talking about, um, women. So, uh, I don't know. I mean, I think that we are always told from the time we're younger that women's sports are lesser. Um, you know, there's this idea out there with with all this trans legislation that young girls are just going to get their butts kicked by young boys if they have to compete against trans girls. Um, I beat the boys regularly when I was a kid. Maybe not so much once I hit puberty, but when I was young, I mean, I played on boys' teams and I kept up with the boys just fine. And I, we need to give more credence. Um, I mean, Katie Ledecky beats male swimmers all the time. Yeah. Um, you know, maybe the very best in the world maybe the very best women swimmer in the world can't be Michael Phelps can't be the very best male swimmer in the world, but there are plenty of, of men that women swimmers can beat. Like, I, I don't know the whole idea of just women being, because we're maybe not as strong physically when it comes to weightlifting, you know, and things like that and how, how fast you can sprint and how much you can lift. Mm -hmm. They assume that we are just lesser on everything else. But I, I think there are lots of sports where, you know, attributes of being a woman, a woman actually um, probably help a little bit. We're with Julie DeCaro. She is uh, an amazing uh, sports journalist. And speaking of sports journalism, hmm. um, I, I don't want to go too far away from the book, but I have to, I would be foolish if I did not ask you um, your opinion of Chicago sports these days. We, we're, we're setting, we're setting ourselves up for either something spectacular <laughs> this summer with the White Sox or an enormous letdown with the Chicago Bears and whatever they decide to do in free agency. What's your take? Yeah, I when it comes to the Bears lately, I just sort of have a heavy sigh and just sort of walk away. And <laughs> I guess the, I guess the thing is this that you know whether we're talking about giving up draft picks or or you giving up number one draft picks or, or making number one draft picks or trading or developing a quarterback. The bottom line is I just don't trust anybody on the Bears. <laughs> like I don't trust that if they had Patrick Mahomes, he would be Patrick Mahomes. Exactly. I don't trust that if they had gotten Deshaun Watson, he would be Deshaun Watson today. I just don't think they have what it takes in that organization from top to bottom. So that depresses me. The mm -hmm. White Sox are so exciting. I can't wait for the season to get going. Mm -hmm. um, Tony LaRusso thing, I feel like, is kind of a downer because I was hoping they'd get a really forward-thinking, young, dynamic manager, and instead they went in exactly the opposite direction. Uh, so we'll see what happens there. The Cubs are just selling everything off, and it's depressing the hell out of me. <laughs> um, <laughs> the Blackhawks are just kind of there, I guess, these days. I, I think the Blackhawks are going to be fine. I mean, I don't know where he keeps finding every available young Russian and, and Finnish yeah. athlete that can skate, but Scott, little Scotty has done a good job. Yeah, I feel like we don't normally tune into the Blackhawks until we find out if they make the playoffs or not, and then everyone's in. Right. And then the Bulls are, you know, I think going to be good, and they've been fun at times, a lot to watch this year. So, I mean, I'm sort of sticking with the Bulls and the White Sox right now, and the rest of it is just kind of depressing. <laughs>
The Boys from I-94 talked with Stephen Heyman, author of the new biography about Louis Bromfield, a forgotten novelist and pioneering agrarian. Heyman revealed how Bromfield, a one-time best-selling writer at the nexus of the golden age of Hollywood, became a self-made evangelist for soil conservation and agricultural reform, ideas that have far outlasted his novels. I-94, Lumpen's Books and Literature show, airs every Thursday and Sunday at 11 a.m. Can you tell us a little bit, first of all, how you came to Mr. Bromfield as a subject, and maybe speak a little to why uh, he is not remembered uh, in the same breath as Ernest Hemingway or some of his contemporaries who at one point he was compared to? Yeah, of course. Um, Well, I was in your exact position about five years ago. I had just moved to Pittsburgh, and, um, you know, I'm I'm a journalist. I'm something of a a generalist, um, and uh, I've always wanted to write a book, but I was looking for a kind of juicy story that I could really sink my teeth into. And I happened to be interviewing – I I had just moved to Pittsburgh. uh, My wife went there to grad school. Uh, so I'm in, I was in this new place, and I was kind of like digging around looking for a story. I met a lamb farmer who himself is like an elder statesman in the world of sustainable agriculture. And he mentioned that one of the things that inspired him and his wife to get into farming in the, I guess this was the 1970s, was um, Louis Bromfield and his book. His books, and I had never heard of the guy. I had never heard of him in, his, you know, as a novelist, nor as a kind of uh, farmer or environmental thinker. And I did a, you know, a cursory Google search, and I just fell down this marvelous rabbit hole. Um, and I couldn't believe that somebody had kind of bridged these two two worlds that felt to me very distant: agriculture and literature. And two places, because Bromfield spent half of his life in, in France and the other half, not far from where he was born, um, in rural Ohio. He moved back there to start his, his, his experimental farm. So, you know, he seemed to connect these things that for most people, I think, exist in, 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 in very uh, kind of disparate places. And that was immediately very appealing to me. So the fact that he had been forgotten and the fact that his life was perched between literature and agriculture excited me. And then the research kind of began from that point. Yeah, I, I, I'm pretty I, – I, I studied the moderns when I was an undergraduate. And his – you know, he was connected with the Fitzgeralds, with Hemingway, with Gertrude Stein. Yeah. Um, so many of the, you know, the people that are revered and studied – I wanted to ask you, and I, I know this is a little off off the track here, but did you ever read any of his novels? Uh, I, I was I work for Chicago Public Library. We don't have very many. Yeah, man, I looked too. Yeah, in the collection, and I also looked on books and print. A lot of his stuff is out of print. Were you able to read any of his novels? Absolutely. I mean, you can find you know there are cheap used copies of his books because millions of them were printed in his time. But it's true, most libraries don't you know keep them in circulation. Uh, a lot of stuff is out of print. Uh, the novels are interesting. I mean, you know, uh, like, I think that Bromfield, as much as he was a kind of modernist in his approach to, to agriculture and the environment, was maybe a little bit behind his, uh, the times relative to people like Hemingway, for instance, whom, you know, he hung out with a lot in Paris in the, in, in the 20s. Um, but... Um, I, 
that's part of the reason why I think his literary work doesn't endure. Um, but, but the novels were interesting both in themselves and as a kind of window into his evolution uh, from a, um, you know, a storyteller who kind of had an interest as, a, as a, almost like a hobby in, in uh, gardening and horticulture to somebody who, uh, you know, for whom the garden and the farm is the most important thing in life. Oh, and he almost brings uh, a kind of artist sensibility to his agricultural work. So there's a, there's a kind of flipping that happens over the course of his life. Oh, I was just going to say, to put it into context uh, for listeners, Chicago Public Libraries, they have one of the biggest collections in the country, you know? One of the biggest right. public, yeah. And, uh, and, and Brumfield, when he... Um, when he was writing it simultaneously or uh, contemporaneously with Hemingway and Fitzgerald, he outsold those guys by quite a bit, I think. So much so that Hemingway had some disparaging remarks yeah. about him. Well, we were talking before the show started um, about another novelist uh, who's not from the Midwest, Frank Yerby. We, we talked about him a little while ago. He was an African-American author who actually went to Spain and wrote romances. But Mike and I had been chatting. There, I was there are, thinking of him, too. When yeah, I was reading about there are a number of authors mm-hmm. in that period who uh, were largely from the Midwest that now seem to be forgotten. Uh, unless yeah. you're actually in this yeah. area of the country. And again, I don't want to get too far off from Louis Bromfield, but I wonder if you had any thoughts about why that might be. Uh, I'm thinking specifically, you know, Sherwood Anderson is somebody you never really hear about unless you're in Chicago. Yeah, or you're reading about uh, Gertrude Stein and the, Correct. the expats. Yeah. Right. Is there is there a reason for that, Stephen? I don't know. I mean, to some extent, that's uh, it, it, it's such a fascinating question of why one, one artist one one writer kind uh, kind of uh, has staying power and others don't. I, I'm not exactly sure what the role of kind of the critical establishment is. What the what the role of like uh, you know popular uh, attention is like. I mean, Bromfield had um, you know as you noted, all of his books were bestsellers, but his critical esteem changed very dramatically. In the 1920s, the New York Times said that he was, you know, essentially the best of all the young American novelists writing in that period. Um, But by the 40s, um, critics like Malcolm Cowley and Edmund Wilson and the lead um, critic for the New York Times, uh, Orville Prescott, turned very strongly against him. and I think that, and, and this may not pertain to some of the other Midwestern or other kind of uh, novels from his generation that you mentioned, but um, in Bromfield's case, because he had this second identity, which ended up becoming more important as a farmer, he kind of confused the critical establishment, and they thought that he wasn't a serious artist because he was also dabbling as a, as a, as a gentleman farmer. That's what they considered him to be when... In fact, what he was doing was um, a lot more serious than that. Yeah, and he has a pivotal role, actually, in the American diaspora over in Paris in the interwar period, which was fascinating to me. He, he held a large salon at a house that he had rented uh, that was uh, populated every weekend by really the mover and shakers of the arts and political community of that time. And that was something I didn't yeah. know about Bromfield at all either. Uh, and that, to me, in a weird way, seems to be one of the most um, 
interesting things about the man. He became very interested in farming in that period in France because he became interested in the food when he was serving in the war as an ambulance driver. Uh, but the mm -hmm. fact that he was such, connect, uh, such a piece of connective tissue between a lot of these people who were hanging out in France just before the outbreak of World War II and some of his thoughts on uh, the Nazi regime and the Vichy and all that, it, it strikes me that he in a weird way, was a more important figure in this kind of connective way of getting people together to talk about these things in a sense that he was more of a writer. And the fact that this also became the time when he was so invested in learning how to farm the French way, he was making uh, salad gardens in his backyard, he was, he was, again, preparing these large feasts out of what he grew, that to me in a weird way is almost enough in itself to you know, cement his reputation as somebody that was a great person to connect these disparate threads of the arts culture. Absolutely. You know, um, his very good friend, Edith Wharton, who had a house and, a, and, a, and, uh, and, and very formal, elaborate gardens at a nearby Bromfield's place in Saint-Lys, uh, once said that she thought her gardens were better than her books. Now, I actually don't think that's true in Wharton's case. Um, uh, but... Um, in, in Bromfield's case, I think it was true. Um, I think that the garden that he built in France, the farm that he created in the Midwest, and the way that he kind of used those places as, as, as like a, a nexus for new ideas and connecting all types of people, absolutely, that's, it more important. that's, a, that's a more important legacy culturally than, than his kind of literary work. Um, I agree with you. Do a show about the squirrels of Bridgeport. I think what we need to focus on. Oh, it, uh, oh are you okay? Oh my oh, God! Kyle, sort through your mail. It's all junk. Just throw it out. No, you pick it up. It can't be strewn all over the entrance. It's a hazard. Last thing we need is another visit from the fire marshal. Last thing I need is less time to do all the crap around here. I gotta do. You have no idea how much. What the flip is their problem? Uh, John's identity got stolen a while back. Say what? Ooh, that's it. That's the show we're going to do about English. Please. On this episode, we're going to do an investigative report on identity theft. Every year, exactly 323 Americans gets their identities took. Size matters investigates. Hang on, did you fact check that? That's the fact that I said the thing. If that figure is exact, then the entire country is a nation of identity thieves. A plausible dystopia indeed. Size matters investigates. I met up with the host of Radio Free Bridgeport, John Daly, to expose the truth about identity theft. Cool beers. This one's a Rhode Island Dirty mm. IPA. I wanted to try Hello, one. good sirs. We're recording an episode of Size Matters. I know. I can see that. What's the episode about? Identity theft and the thieves who steal them. I would like to keep that a private matter. And the not... jig is up. How long you been gallivanting around as other people? That, that is not what Who's I... staring in oh. the meat suit? The what? This is good stuff. Keep going. Don't nag him on. Explain yourself, imposter. Speak. Someone used my personal information to go on a shopping spree. I think he's lying. That sounds rehearsed Yeah, it to me. does. Jess, what the... Ow. Hey, not cool. <laughs> then tell me who you is. My identity got stolen. I wasn't taken over by the body snatchers or the talented Mr. Ripley. Or the thing. The what? what? The 1982 John Carpenter classic. Or 
the 1930s classic. So wait, someone stole your credit card. Credit cards, PIN, Social Security uh, number, all that kind of stuff. Uh, that's kind of boring. I can't do a whole show on that. Don't look at me. I think your concept of identity theft is hilarious. <laughs> yeah, I totally see that now. That's good producing, Jess. Yeah, I'm great. Kyle, just be glad you're incapable of having your identity stolen. How so? No address, no records. Well, what about all the mail? That's right. What? You are on the grid. It's all junk. Credit card offers and social security, what have you. Well, hang on. Credit card offers? Yeah. That means you have credit. Wait a sec. How many credit cards do you have? I ain't never had one. I'm checking here on the net to see if you have anything open in your name. Oh, yeah. My suitcase. Call it down, down, Kyle. I can't use my suitcase. I'm using your suitcase because it's what I gotta do. Kyle, you're freaking out. You need to relax. I've never seen him so distraught. John, how long has this guy been using Uh, Kyle's info? About 30 years. (laughs) Just hold on. Let's see where in Scottsdale, Arizona, this guy lives. Wow. That is a nice piece of property. What? Property? Gets worse. You paid for med school. What? You gotta be Kyle, kidding me. don't worry. We're what? gonna kill this middle finger. Yeah, I don't know about that, but we're gonna confront them. I gotta go find him. Someone buy me a plane ticket. I made my way to Scottsdale, Arizona, where I met up with a man going by the name of Kyle Seismankowski. We agreed to meet up in an industrial park outside of... Oh, crud. The battery on the portable recorder's about to die. I'll talk fast. We agreed to meet up... Hey, Kyle's alive! Boy, what a trip. What a great time I had. Did you end up using the lie? The what? Uh, so is that guy in prison or what? Actually, this jerk turned out to be one of the coolest people I've ever met in my whole life. Say what? Yeah, he's got a great taste in clothes, cars, and this house is so big, I learned a new word to describe it. Palatial. This is the man who stole your information? Not at all. Turns out his name is also Kyle Seismankowski, and he was also born on September 29th, 1946 in Chicago. Well, that's because he ripped you off. No, it turns out it's just a coincidence. Kyle, for years he's been using your credit to establish himself in society while you've been stuck squatting and mooching. Not entirely. No, actually completely. Now, it just so happens that we have identical social security numbers. The only difference is he actually has a social security card and a birth certificate. You don't? Nope, my dad just wrote all my information down on an index card and told me not to lose it. I gotta go and pack. Excuse me, guys. Wait. I'm confused. If Kyle Seismankowski of Scottsdale, Arizona has proof of who he is, then who is our Kyle Seismankowski? Size Matters investigates? This week on The Biden Files, Biden gets a big win as the Rescue Act passes despite lockstep Republican opposition. Trump sends C&Ds to the RNC and looks to hoover up the fundraising. A Trump appointee spent a million dollars investigating his own staff. Andrew Cuomo was hit with six sexual abuse allegations. Garland is confirmed. We passed one year since the pandemic was declared. These are The Biden Files. Day 45, March 5th. The Senate voted to open debate on President Biden's $1.9 trillion coronavirus relief bill after Senator Ron Johnson of Wisconsin forced the Senate clerk to read all 628 pages of the bill, which took about 10 hours. 
Senate Majority Leader Chuck Schumer dismissed Johnson's effort to delay, saying the tactic, quote, will accomplish little more than a few sore throats for the Senate clerks. No matter how long it takes, the Senate is going to stay in session to finish the bill this week. Senate Democrats agreed to lower the federal unemployment benefit to $300 a week, down from $400 approved by the House as part of the relief package. Meanwhile, seven Democrats joined with Republicans in voting down an effort by Bernie Sanders to raise the minimum wage to $15 an hour to the bill. Kirsten Cinema of Arizona voted down the increase with a dramatic thumbs down in an echo of her mentor, John McCain. There are almost 10 million fewer jobs today than a year ago, despite the U.S. economy adding 379,000 jobs in February. The unemployment rate in February was 6.2%, down a half a percentage point from February. Economists, however, put the real unemployment rate at around 10%. The Trump administration moved around $10 billion in monies that were supposed to go to pay for pandemic-related expenses to hospitals to Operation Warp Speed contracts. While Congress allowed the Department of Health and Human Services to move money between accounts, lawmakers required that agency to notify them. The Department of Health and Human Services instead spent the money directly out of the Provider Relief Fund on warp spree contracts. The Capitol Police requested the National Guard continue to provide security at the Capitol for another two months. There are currently more than 5,000 National Guard members in Washington, D.C. Meanwhile, the FBI is now examining communication records between members of Congress and the pro-Trump mob that attacked the U.S. Capitol on January 6th. Former House impeachment manager Eric Swalwell sued Trump, Donald Trump Jr., Rudy Giuliani, and Representative Mo Brooks, alleging that they and others were responsible for the injury and destruction of the attack on the U.S. Capitol. It is the second major lawsuit that seeks to hold Trump and his allies accountable. Representative Benny Thompson has sued Trump for violating the 1871 Ku Klux Klan Act by trying to prevent Congress from carrying out its official duties. And Detroit Mayor Mike Duggan rejected an allotment of 6,000 Johnson & Johnson COVID-19 vaccines because he said he wants Detroiters, quote, to get the best vaccines, which he said are the Moderna and Pfizer shots. The comments were later called a misunderstanding. Day 46, March 6th. President Biden's $1.9 trillion rescue bill passed in a badly divided Senate with Democrats united over lockstep Republican opposition to provide the biggest safety net expansion in a generation. The measure must still pass the House again this week. That measure will now send another round of stimulus checks to many Americans and extend unemployment benefits into the fall as well. But the party line vote also signaled how Republicans are looking to sandbag all legislation. Democrats are now talking about what was previously unthinkable, ending the filibuster. Currently, legislation in the Senate requires 60 votes to progress. Senate Democrats are reportedly warming to that idea as fears grow that Republicans will move to block Biden's agenda. However, two Senate Democrats, Joe Manchin and Kristen Sinema, have said they will oppose any effort to do away with the filibuster. The House passed an expansion of federal voting rights over unified Republican opposition. The bill, titled the For the People Act, would create uniform national voting standards, overhaul campaign finance laws, and outlaws partisan redistricting, similar to a bill that was passed two years ago that died in the Senate. The bill is unlikely to draw the 60 votes needed to advance. The House also passed the George Floyd Justice in Policing Act. That reform bill would ban police chokeholds and racial and religious profiling, establish a national database to track police misconduct, and prohibit certain no-knock warrants. That bill passed 220 to 212, with two Democrats voting against it and one Republican accidentally voting for it. Representative Lance Gooden tweeted he had pressed the wrong button and meant to vote no. 
a Trump appointee that oversees Voice of America, spent more than $1 million of taxpayer money investigating his own staff. Michael Pack was reportedly irate last summer when he couldn't fire or suspend executives who had told him that many of his plans at VOA were illegal. Pack personally signed a no-bid contract to hire a law firm to review social media posts, news articles relating to Michael Pack, and an inspector general audit on, quote, Hillary Clinton's email breach. Florida Governor Ron DeSantis received a $250,000 donation from former Illinois Governor Bruce Rauner after Rauner's Tony private gated community in Florida received enough vaccine doses for 1,200 residents over the age of 65. Since DeSantis has started using pop-up vaccination sites, his political committee has raked in $2.7 million. Day 47, March 7th. Health officials are now raising the alarm over a fast-growing variant of the United States known as B1117 that is doubling its share of all new cases about every 10 days. A new CDC study also found that mask-wearing mandates were linked to fewer infections, but also found that counties opening restaurants for on-premise dining saw a rise in both infections and deaths. Those findings were immediately attacked by the National Restaurant Association, which called the study, quote, an ill-informed attack on the industry hardest hit by the pandemic. The FBI arrested a Trump-appointed State Department aide on charges related to the January 6th attack on the Capitol. Federico Guillermo Klein, now a former State Department aide, is the first arrest of a Trump administration official in connection with that insurrection. He was seen on camera wearing a Make America Great Again hat, shoving a shield into a police officer and inciting the crowd. Also, the FBI said a member of the far-right nationalist group Proud Boys was in communication with the White House in the days before the assault. The leader of the far-right group also said he had been in touch with Roger Stone while at a protest in front of Marco Rubio's home. During that protest, Enrique Tarrio put Stone on a speakerphone to address the gathering. The Trump administration referred at least 334 leaks of classified information for criminal investigation. That is a record. Under Trump, the FBI also established a special unit in his counterintelligence division for investigating leaks. Day 48, March 8th. The United States topped 2 million vaccine doses a day for the first time, setting America on track to exceed President Biden's goal of 100 million vaccine doses in his first 100 days. That milestone was also a sign of momentum in the efforts to vaccinate every American against COVID despite persistent problems in major cities. The feds are now opening 18 large-scale vaccination centers in major cities in an effort to get them on track. President Biden signed an executive order directing the Department of Education to reverse Title IX changes that Trump had used to protect students accused of sexual assault and misconduct. Fully reversing those policies will take years, as former Education Secretary Betsy DeVos used a formal rules-making process, meaning the Biden administration will have to do the same. Biden also established a so-called Gender Policy Council to aid in developing domestic and foreign policies that, quote, fight bias and discrimination, including sexual harassment. The CIA is expanding its investigation into a series of attacks said to be caused by microwave weapons that have been directed at American diplomats around the world. Episodes occurred in Cuba, China, Russia, and elsewhere. Dozens of intelligence officials and diplomats have been affected with what has become known as the Havana Syndrome. In multiple cases, that has caused traumatic brain injuries. The trial of the former police officer who is alleged to have murdered George Floyd, sparking nationwide protests, is to start in Minnesota. Derek Chavon, who faces second-degree murder and second-degree manslaughter charges, may now also face third-degree murder charges after a court of appeal ruled those charges should apply. Jury selection in Chauvin's trial began this morning. 
and Russian trolls are spreading disinformation to undermine confidence in the Pfizer and Moderna vaccines. That misinformation includes false claims that vaccines can alter DNA or don't work, and they are targeting black and Hispanic residents that become the basis for new and false narratives. The DCCC has reversed an official policy that said any Democratic consultant or political group that supported a challenger against an incumbent Democrat in the House would be allowed to do business with the party's official campaign arm. That policy drew fire from many left-leaning Democrats who noted the policy discriminated against women who in many cases were running for the first time against incumbents. The policy was put in place after the stunning upset success of Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez and her use of a tech tool known as Reach. She has offered that freely to all Democratic challengers. President Biden has nominated two female generals to four-star commands months after the Pentagon had agreed on their promotions but held them back out of fears that Trump would reject those officers because they were women. Republican Senator Roy Blunt will now not run for re-election in 2022. Blunt is the fourth Republican senator, joining Rob Portman, Pat Toomey, Richard Shelby, and Richard Burr to not seek re-election. Day 49, March 9th. In a major step, the CDC said that people who are fully vaccinated against the virus can now gather privately in small groups without masks or physical distancing. That is a partial relaxation of safety guidelines for inoculated individuals under some circumstances. The CDC did caution those guidelines were likely to shift the CDC also stressed people who are fully immunized should continue to wear masks and keep their distance from others in public. More than 3,400 migrant children are now in Customs and Border Protection custody, triple the number two weeks ago. Border agents, meanwhile, encountered about 78,000 migrants at the border in January, more than double at the same time a year ago and higher than in any January in a decade. Calling it a crisis, the new head of the DHS called for volunteer help at the border. Alejandro Mayorkas said the crisis was exacerbated by a flood of attempted border crossings, but also because, quote, when we arrived, we found the previous administration had entirely dismantled the immigration system. In a related story, ICE said the Biden administration is, quote, not ending family detention despite recent public comments. ICE does maintain and continues to maintain a system for family detention. We are not closing the family detention centers. The Manhattan District Attorney subpoenaed documents from a company that loaned the Trump Organization $130 million for its Chicago skyscraper. The DA is examining whether the Trump Organization misled lenders or brokers about the valuation for certain properties. The Supreme Court rejected Trump's final challenge to overturn the presidential election, dismissing his appeal of lower court rulings that upheld Wisconsin's handling of mail-in ballots. Trump also had a libel claim against the New York Times dismissed. He had claimed that an opinion column entitled The Real Trump-Russia Quid Pro Quo by Max Frankel was libelous. A judge dismissed that claim with prejudice, noting that commentary is not actionable, and even if it was, Trump failed to show facts supporting actual malice. The Times is filing an anti-slap claim against Trump in response for costs and attorney fees. And Trump's lawyers sent cease and desist letters to three of the largest Republican fundraising groups for using his name and likeness on fundraising emails. Trump was upset that his name was being used without permission by groups that had helped Republicans who voted to impeach him. Day 50, March 10th. The House is set to approve the sweeping coronavirus rescue bill today and send it to President Biden to sign in a major victory for Democrats. The bill will send checks to most American and extend unemployment benefits. It also contains major anti-poverty measures, including nearly $5 billion for black farmers in the USA. Key to the measure is a boosted child tax credit that will provide a monthly benefit for many needy families in a first. That will also greatly expand the safety net in America. 
Biden, however, will not put his name on the next round of stimulus checks. Previous checks were delayed because Trump insisted on adding his name to the memo line of those checks from the Treasury. The Biden administration notified the Supreme Court it is dropping its defense of the so-called public charge rule that made it more difficult for immigrants to obtain permanent residency if they use benefits such as Medicaid, food stamps, or federal housing aid. Local governments had challenged the policy, arguing it was so broad that immigrants who say received school lunches could have had their residency revoked. Two states passed bills restricting voting. Iowa Governor Kim Reynolds signed a Republican-backed bill into law that makes it harder to vote by cutting early voting and closing the polls an hour earlier. Iowa has no history of election irregularities. That November's election sought record turnout with no evidence of voter fraud. The Georgia Senate also passed a bill to repeal no-excuse absentee voting and require more voter ID. Georgians will now need to provide a driver's license, driver's license number, state ID number, or other identification. In a related story, a study found that increased voting by mail in 2020 did not give an advantage to either party. Instead, both parties saw a small but equal increase in turnout. And in another related story, Trump yesterday requested a vote-by-mail ballot for a municipal election in Tampa, Florida. Trump escalated a standoff over the Republican Party's financial future, blasting party leaders and urging his backers to send donations to him, not to the institutional groups that traditionally control Republican coffers. Trump said in the statement, I fully support the Republican Party and important GOP committees, but I do not support rhinos and fools, and it is not their right to use my likeness or image to raise fund. He then added another plug for his super PAC. There are a few guardrails on super PACs, and Trump, in theory, could pay himself and his family members' salaries from the money raised there. Trump also has $400 million in loans that he's personally guaranteed that are coming due. Day 51, March 11th. Democrats acted over unified Republican opposition to push through a sweeping pandemic rescue plan that also includes a major expansion to this country's social safety net. Acting to rescue a nation that is suffering from 10% unemployment, Democrats brushed aside lockstep partisan opposition to enact measures that polls show Americans overwhelmingly support, giving the nation one of the largest injections of federal aid since the Great Depression. Republicans complained that Democrats, quote, abandoned any pretense of unity, in the words of House Minority Leader Kevin McCarthy, but Republicans failed to offer alternatives and refused to bargain, gambling that their opposition would kneecap the Biden administration. Following the vote, House Speaker Nancy Pelosi said at a press conference about the Republicans, quote, it's typical that they vote no and take the dough. As if to prove her point, Senator Roger Wicker of Mississippi tweeted just hours after the bill passed about the $28.6 billion included for, quote, targeted relief for restaurants. He did not mention that he had voted no on the bill. The Senate has voted to confirm Merrick Garland's Attorney General, giving the widely respected federal judge the perhaps thankless task of overseeing a Justice Department that has been brutally politicized under Trump and is now grasping to regain national legitimacy. Garland was confirmed 70 to 30 in a show of his clout in D.C. Garland was notoriously blocked from a seat on the Supreme Court by now Minority Leader Mitch McConnell during the late days of the Obama administration. President Biden announced he intends to secure an additional 100 million doses of Johnson & Johnson's single-shot vaccine by the end of the year, with the goal of having enough on hand to vaccinate children and, if necessary, administer booster doses or reformulate the vaccine to combat emerging variants. In a major American religious story, the speaker and preacher Beth Moore quit the Southern Baptists, citing their, quote, staggering support of Trump, among other issues. 
Moore, who is one of the most popular evangelists in the world, made the bombshell announcement on Tuesday, citing the, quote, demonic stranglehold of white supremacy and lambasting their support of Trump and his sexism. The Southern Baptists are America's biggest single Protestant denomination. They are also a key constituency of Trump. An aide to Governor Andrew Cuomo said the New York State governor had groped her in the executive mansion. The woman is the sixth to accuse the governor of sexual harassment or inappropriate behavior. Those new details, which were reported yesterday, involve the most sexually aggressive allegation yet. Cuomo, a former Democratic star, is resisting calls to step down. The RNC is planning to hold part of its spring fundraising gala at Mar-a-Lago. That came after the Four Seasons in Palm Beach said they would not allow for the 350 people who wanted to attend the reception where Trump is scheduled to speak. The hotel also expressed concerns about hosting Trump himself. 60% of Americans now approve of Biden's job performance. 70% approve of his handling of the pandemic. More than one in five adults have received at least one vaccine dose. Just over one in 10 have received two. These are the Biden Files. Kiefer Dunn spoke to Jess Myers about the podcast Here There Be Dragons. Myers discussed how feelings of safety and belonging in cities are actually conditioned by the built environment. Buildings on Air airs the first Saturday of each month at 2 p.m. Jess, how are you? (laughs) Kiefer, I'm good. You know, living that pandemic lifestyle. <laughs> um, yeah, I'm, I'm based in Brooklyn right now and uh, living and quarantining in Flatbush. Yeah, we're all, uh, we're all living that quarantine life. Uh, this is yet another building <laughs> that are coming from the home studio. Um, so I, I'm, I want to talk about uh, your podcast uh, because you know, okay, Buildings on Air goes out as a podcast. Probably some people will be listening to a podcast version of this episode. But but really, you know, this is a sort of uh, a talk radio <laughs> enterprise where, um, you know, we, we have a chat with people on the air and it's sort of informal. Your show is very much, it's like a podcast. It's highly produced. It sort of has that... Um, uh, it's 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 edited. It's stitched together in a thoughtful way. You know, it really gets into like the 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 full uh, capabilities of what an audio medium can provide. But I think probably the best way to introduce people to your show is maybe like talking about the name a little bit, <laughs> because I the, the name is so oh, so yeah. perfect for the show. So maybe that's like uh, maybe you can tell us about the name <laughs> and, and the show uh, yeah. sort of together. Yeah, of course. Um, well, to start with the name, so Here There Be Dragons is, um, any D&D heads out there would probably be very <laughs> familiar with this, but um, it's a mapping uh, convention from um, like a medieval era. You could actually, you could track it back to like Vikings, Viking era, where essentially mm-hmm. like what cartographers would do is like sit at a port and as ships come in, they would like call sailors and like travelers over to them to like describe where they had been, right? And mm-hmm. as they they're sort of like building up like all of this, all of these stories to like create maps um, and areas mm-hmm. where um, multiple people talked about either like not going, avoiding, or finding dangerous would have this you know tag on it, Huntsik um, Dragonus which means here be dragons or here there be dragons um, or here there be monsters. 
And uh, I liked that title because um, basically what the podcast does is we interview a lot of different residents from a city and basically they're sort of describing their city to us but we mm-hmm. um, ask them about different questions related to their comfort safety or feelings of insecurity in their cities and like where that comes from and why um, and then we begin to sort of like you know the reason why it's edited in the way that it is is because we wanted to sort of like take those stories from people and sort of slide them on a string, almost like pearls mm-hmm. on a necklace sort of next to each other, where they didn't necessarily have to be in a room together. Like we're interviewing like wildly, you know, different people. Like I remember when I was um, doing the field work for uh, the Paris season, like one minute I was talking to like an economic development person uh based in versailles and like mm-hmm. the next day i'm talking to you know a woman running like an afro futurist like punk venue <laughs> you know or, or festival right um and it's like these two people probably never in the same room together but the the thing that they have this feeling that they have towards like a certain neighborhood that overlaps this is pretty yeah. interesting right and like why would such different people like come away with similar conclusions about a place, you know? Yeah. Yeah. And and with the, the medium, you can sort of uniquely sort of stitch those things together to tell a yeah. story that you really, you really kind of couldn't in any other way without like displacing them in space and time into, into an audio feed. Right. Uh, which is pretty cool. Um, yeah. And, 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 the show is beautiful, like with, with the textures, uh, you know, the sort of audio textures of the place. Um, so there's three seasons so far. Uh, so it's New York was uh, the first one, then the Paris. Yes, it's, it's really bad editing. The first one is so, the editing is really <laughs> bad because it was me by myself. And I was just figuring out how to, like, I was using like lynda.com to like learn. <laughs> um, but I feel like you can, I interrupted you, but like the first season is, is New York um, and the second season is Paris and the third season is Stockholm. And you yeah. can kind of hear what funding, what it sounds like to be funded <laughs> as like the seasons go on. <laughs> <laughs> right. <laughs> yeah. Buildings on Air is probably having the exact opposite trajectory. Uh, you know, it's, we're going from really high quality, you know, every, every month, every year, you know, <laughs> but, but uh, you know, I, so, so this latest season, well, we're like you're like uh, uh, a few episodes have been released, and it's it's zeroing in on uh, Stockholm. So, uh, sort of, uh, t- like, tell me about that. Like, how like how Stockholm? <laughs> how did that happen? Like, yeah. I'm like, what's? You know, I don't want I don't want you to like uh, uh, give us any spoilers or anything. But like, you know, what's what's the sort of uh, uh, spoilers? <laughs> Spoilers yeah, what's, about what's, like mid century uh, Swedish uh, housing policy. Yeah. <laughs> um so maybe just to talk a little bit too, because I kinda I get this question sometimes of just like why are you focusing on like Western cities, right? Hmm. Um and I think that that's really in, it's really important to me, um, because I think sometimes in um like Western education, like especially in architecture. Yeah. We and city planning, we use Western cities as like this example of like things that are done and like resolved and fine, <laughs> right? Uh-huh. Like these are these become the mo- the models of cities to everywhere else, right? Right. 
Um, but I was really curious because, you know, I have grew up next to New York. I've been to Paris, you know, through my life. Um, and this was actually the first time I've been to Stockholm. But I always, like, there's so much there's such a lack of resolution in these cities right mm-hmm. and there's there's so much that's still on the table uh for debate eureka cast now broadcasting saturdays 8 to 9 p.m on lumpen radio uh, right so leaving that world of childish um, naval gazing. Let's talk about the serious issue tonight, mm-hmm. which is, of course, communicating with extraterrestrials. Right. And how one should go about that. Right. Some people think that we are closer than ever to discovering life beyond our own Earth. And this begs the question what relationship will we have with them? Picture- and really, the only question is will we be prepared? Picture this. You're doing yoga on a balmy summer evening in your forest cabin. Mm. The night sky is just twinkling, and you see what you think is the aurora, but you realize this is not the time of year or the location for an aurora when suddenly a bright light shines down from the sky, startling you. It startles your cats. They run. They scatter. And your first thought is, how am I going to get Agamemnon back out from under that stump? But then you look back and you see the light gives way to the form of a spaceship, and it lands right in front of your meditation space. Mm-hmm. A door opens, a figure exits. It is an extraterrestrial. What do you do? What are you saying? That is the situation we thought about before we came on the air. Exactly. And what really everyone should be thinking about. Right. I mean, you just saying that, Rowan, I was, when you said, what will you say? My mind went blank, blank because that is a very stressful, very important position to be in. Science doesn't just fall in your lap all the time Uh, but the thing is you need to be ready for it you need to be ready for any science that that could fall fall from the sky and land right in your meditation space any one of us could be the first person to make contact it could be literally any one of us it's Mm -hmm. like winning the lottery or getting pancreatic cancer it just happens and it happens it's going to happen stochastically. So right. the more people that can be prepared for this, the more likely we can have that there will be positive outcomes from first contact. Yes. Um, so so the, the, the question is, you're put in that position. What do you do? What are the questions that you, that you ask? What information do you get from these extraterrestrials. And we've been meditating on that. We've been we discussing to. it back and forth. This is something that we have been taking very seriously because mm-hmm. it's, it's frankly, it's a, a, a quite a deep philosophical quandary. But mm-hmm. I think we we put our heads together. Right. Um, and we, we organized it. We categorized it. We think that we have come up with some good, at least some good guidelines that people should take this with. It, it, right. It, it, if they're so interested, if they're in this situation, it's something right. to consider at the, least. The, mo- the most important thing is that you reflect on what you're going to say. But if you, if you have no ideas, if you're just starting off, if you're an amateur in this sort of science, um, it's, you know, why not get some tips from your friends, Kai and Rowan. Eureka Cast Now, broadcasting Saturdays, 8 to 9 p.m. on Lumpen Radio. The Lumpen Week in Review is produced by the staff and volunteers of WLPN LP Chicago, the community radio of the future.
The Week in Review is overseen by Jamie Trecker, voiceovers by Shanna Van Volt, additional production by Cole Eisenberg, Julie Wu, Sergio Rodriguez, Neil Gaynor, Lane Gerbig, Alexander Jerry, John Piotrowski, Ari Shellist, and Annie Klein. Live music production by Ari Shellist. The Lumpen theme, background, and interstitial music is by Mike Perkins. The Lumpen radio sting is by Dan Jugal. For more information on Lumpen Radio, visit lumpenradio.com. Thank you.